it's so good to be with all of you today in worship. Welcome again to RCC. My name is Tim. Again, I'm one of the pastors here. And I just love that we have release here today. And so if you haven't had a chance to talk to them, they've got a table right out here. And they would love to talk to you about how you can partner with them to mentor these students and all of the other things that they do. What a blessing. And it's fitting that they're here today. It's almost like we planned it because this week in our Rooted Message series, we are talking about purpose. Why are we here? What am I supposed to do with my time? What am I supposed to do with my life? How do I make the most of it? And these are really big questions. And so I love that in this Rooted series that we have been in, we're not afraid to discuss big questions, really deep questions, questions that all of us have, questions like, who is God? Where is God in the midst of suffering? And how does he speak to us? Why is there evil? Who is the enemy? And so Anthony has done a, a phenomenal job of leading us through these questions these last few weeks. And these are big questions that all of us wrestle with. And shouldn't church be a place that we can come and have these questions and ask difficult things? Because if, if the church is not addressing difficult questions, if we're not talking about the things that we're already thinking about, then people are going to go somewhere else to find the answers, right? And that might be the internet, heaven forbid, that's social media. And so I am thankful that we have a church here that is not afraid to discuss difficult things. And so today we're talking about why we exist, which is a big question, a big deal. Why are we here? And, and not, not as in why is humanity here, as in why did God create humans? That's, that's a different question for a different day. Today, the question is, why are you here? Why am I here? What is the reason that I exist? What is the reason that each of you exist? What is my purpose? What is your purpose? And so that question, man, it has been asked throughout the centuries and pages and pages of books have been written on that. And so if you do a quick search for books on purpose, you're going to find all kinds of answers, right? From both religious and non-religious uh, authors. And so here's just a, a, a small sampling of that. Things like the purpose-driven life, the life you were born to live, find your why, life worth living, don't waste your life. And so I'm not, I'm not recommending any of these books necessarily because some have more merit than others, but each author is attempting to provide you with some kind of a reason to live, right? A reason to get out of bed in the morning, a reason to keep going maybe when life is hard. And so purpose often it provides us with hope. So it's been said that a person can live 40 days without food and three days without water and eight minutes without oxygen, but only one second without hope. So discovering the reason that we exist is a fundamental pursuit of humanity. So let's start with the, the basics, just the facts. And so here is uh, a brilliant observation that is so obvious, it's probably going to knock you out of your chair. Are you ready? You exist. Can you believe that? Did, did you know that you are alive? So your heart is beating inside of your chest. Your lungs are providing you with oxygen. Your eyes and your ears are sending signals to your brain. And your brain is firing off synapses and it's wondering where I'm going with this. And so <laughs> you don't exist everywhere. You exist in one place at one time. So you are here 
in the room or you are in your living room or you are watching this at the gym or whatever, but you are here. So how did you get here? And by that I mean not how did you get to this specific place, did you drive or did you walk, but how did you come into existence? Where did you come from? Okay, so, so bear with me here. In order to exist, right, you have to have two parents, one mom and one dad. And, and sometimes when I try to think of examples, I try to think of things that are generally true for most people and, and then address the exceptions later. But in this case, there are no exceptions. Whether you knew them or not, whether you have a good relationship with them or not, you have one biological mom and one biological dad. There's no exceptions. So then your mom and your dad also had mothers and fathers. So now you have four grandparents, right? And, and they have parents. So now you have eight grandparents and then 16 great, great. And this chart, it shows an exponential number of ancestors that you have. Okay, so we're at the 10th. There's 4,096 ancestors that you have at that level. And if you keep going back, you eventually hit a point that genealogists call pedigree collapse. And that's where the exponential number of ancestors in your family tree exceeds the total population of the world at a particular point in history. And so modern genealogists have realized that the world population was much smaller 10, 20, 30 generations ago. And so there are fewer people that could have been in existence, which means that there are fewer ancestors. And so recently, some of them have come to the conclusion that if you go back far enough, there are so few ancestors alive that it is highly probable that everyone alive today was descended from common ancestors. And so Dr. Uh, Joshua Swamidis, he recently wrote a book called The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. And this argues for the existence of a historical man and a historical woman that every person in existence can trace their lineage back to. And now he's using scientific and genealogical methods. And so the evidence for universal ancestry is really compelling, even outside of scripture. But you don't have to read that book. It's very dense. You could just read Genesis 1 and 2 and come to the same conclusion. There's one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve, who is at the top of every person's family tree in the history of existence. And so what does this mean for you? That means that from the beginning of human existence that God has been preparing for your arrival. With each ancestor all the way down to you, God has miraculously and purposefully brought you into existence. So you know all of those uh, seemingly random names that the Bible lists in these various genealogies of people? They don't really show up anywhere else in the narrative. Like for instance, to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, Methushael fathered Lamech. They're really hard to pronounce. Um, and so to us, those names, they don't mean much. They don't matter much. But to God, those are his kids. 
And so we get a little snapshot of God telling us about his children. And so those random names, each of them matter to God, and each of those people mattered to their families. And they provide connections in our timeline from, uh, from Adam to Noah, for example. We have a genealogy there. And so there's generations and generations of these connections. So the Bible could have left all of those names out and just said, well, there's this many generations between these two people. But instead, the Bible provides names because names have meaning. Names are connected to people and people are important to the Father. And so are you. So from the beginning, your arrival is no accident. Your placement in your family tree, it contains names that God cares about, even 4,096 of them. And if you don't believe me that you are no accident, Think about all of the circumstances that have led you to being here. Not only did your great, great, great grandparents have to survive whatever global catastrophe was happening during their lifetime, they also had to meet and choose each other over all of the other people in existence in order for their child to be your great, great grandparent. And that had to happen 16 times in order for you to have 16 great, great grandparents. So in 1941, uh, my, my great grandparents on the Cargus side, they were living in Glendale, California. And then Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December of that year. And my great-grandparents decided to move the family, my grandpa was really little, from California to Nebraska, of all places. Because they worried that Japan was going to invade, and they thought they should move further inland. And so my grandpa might not have met my grandma if my, my great-grandparents didn't decide to move to Nebraska from California in 1941. So if that doesn't happen, I wouldn't exist. And that's just one small example. All of that to say, it is incredible that you exist. Even if you don't know any of the connections in your biological family tree of your biological parents and grandparents, sociologically, scientifically, spiritually, genealogically, you have to admit that there seems like a, you, you, it seems like there's less of a cosmic coincidence the further you go back in time. And so all of these tiny decisions that were made by your ancestors, all of these massive global events that forced some of these decisions, all led to one indisputable fact today. You have a birthday. But you aren't just some cosmic fluff or random collection of particles that came from nothing and, going, and you're going nowhere. Because if it's true that we are genealogically and spiritually connected to Adam and Eve, then we inherited the consequences of their decision. But what is true of them is also true for us today. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 28. And this is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You are not a mistake. 
You are not an accident. You are not, as one prominent atheist has famously said, a biochemical puppet. Do you know what you are? You are made in the image of God. After his likeness. And, And I think some of us need to sit there for a little longer than others. Because when, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? I know there are some who struggle even to see their reflection. They can barely look at themselves because they're so upset or they're so ashamed of who they are or of what they've done or what they look like. But the foundational truth of every person in existence is that you are made in the image of God. There's no exceptions. And, and so get this. You are also fearfully and wonderfully made, as it says in Psalm 139. And and so this might be a little bit of a strange exercise, but the next time you're in front of a mirror, instead of tearing yourself down, try telling yourself, I am made in the image of God. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And you might have to repeat that a few times to get yourself to believe it or to create a new neurological pathway in your brain to fight the negative. So what what I'm hoping to communicate here is that it's amazing that we are alive. And it's even more amazing that the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything into being, the one who gave you the very breath in your lungs, made us in his image. Man, what care God must have taken. Consider the amount of thought that God put towards your features, towards your personality, towards your abilities, towards your gift. God took a long time thinking about you. And so in Psalm 8, King David is filled with wonder at this idea. And he says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you have set in place, what is man? that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. It's as if to say, God, what have we done to deserve life, to deserve being made in your image, to deserve such care, your kindness and purpose? You could have created us God like animals who don't have a cosmic thought. Animals don't look up at the stars and question their own existence. And I can say this as a person who has spent a considerable amount of time at the Omaha Zoo and watched a lot of animal documentaries. (laughs) But God created us in his image. He also creates us with a purpose. He gives us meaningful work. And so in Psalm 8 in Genesis 1, we have a reference to dominion over the land, watching over it. And also in Genesis 1, we have humans are told to, to, to be fruitful and to multiply. So in essence, the fruit of our multiplication is what? It's more humans, more humans to care about. And humans that we care about, they exist in groups that we refer to as families, right? And so God creates marriage at the end of chapter 2 in Genesis. And we see the first family of parents and children in chapter 4. And so even when Adam and Eve sinned in chapter 3, God had given them work to do. They were caretakers of the garden. So so human beings have always had work to do. Work is not a punishment. God gave work at the beginning when everything was good. And so I think from Genesis 1, we can kind of formulate and discern what our purpose is from the beginning as men and women created in God's image. Our purpose is to bear fruit and family and have dominion over our work. And we're going to expand on that in a second. But how do we know if we are bearing fruit? We want to ask ourselves two questions. One, 
Is this glorifying God or me? Two, is this benefiting others or myself? In my work, am I glorifying God or myself? In my family, am I glorifying God or myself? In my faith, am I glorifying God or seeking my own glory? So our purpose then is right at the middle of faith, family, and work. It's at the heart of those three. So as image bearers of the almighty God, we have this opportunity through faith, work, and family to bring him glory. And God is the object of all of this. He is the giver. He is the provider. He is the sustainer of everything in this diagram. And so faith, family, and work, they often overlap in our lives, but we're going to look at each of those individually. So let's start with faith first. So Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame of faith. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some versions say the evidence even of things unseen. Dallas Willard says faith is confidence grounded in reality, not a wild, desperate leap. So I love that Hebrews 11, it gives us kind of a, a hall of fame, a heroes of the faith, starting with Abel, who offered an acceptable sacrifice through faith. And then Abraham gets listed here a few times for his acts of faith. And then at the end of chapter 11, it says this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, of Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, they obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Man, so through faith, your God-given purpose might lead you to do things you never thought possible. So uh, right out of college, I started traveling with a ministry called the Todd Becker Foundation, and we went to high schools um, around the Midwest. And so every week I would play music in front of high school students, hundreds of high school students who are terrifying, right? They judge everything that you do. And so I heard a teacher one time talk about the difference between middle school and high school students. And they said, middle school students want you to know that they are cool, but high school students want to know if you are cool or if you've ever been cool. Well, I've never been cool. So this is a problem for me. So I, I've, I've also dealt with varying levels of anxiety on and off throughout my life. And so at these concerts, I got to a point where I was sort of confident in the music and in leading the band and singing the songs, sort of. Uh, but I had no interest in speaking between the songs. Speaking in front of crowds makes me anxious. And so Keith, the, the director of the foundation, he encouraged me. He said, you know what? You could probably say a few words in between each of these. And, a few, and at first I was like, there's no way. I just, I can't do this. I'm too nervous. And then one of my mentors at the time encouraged me to memorize Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And man, I would, I would say that over and over until I believed it, until I had to go out in front of a gymnasium full of judgmental high school students. And so through faith, God guarded my heart and he guarded my mind in Christ Jesus so I could do something I never thought that I should be able to do. 
speak in front of people. And so saying and praying Philippians 4, 6 to 7 before I speak is still a regular habit. I did it multiple times today. So part of my purpose through faith was to trust God to do his work in me. And you are all going to have different scenarios that you have to trust God through faith that he's going to provide the assurance of things you have hoped for. And then you'll get the evidence for things unseen when God continues to provide. So here's the thing. Our faith in God, it fuels all of the other aspects of our purpose. It feeds us. So listen to what Jesus says in John 6, 27 to 29. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set the seal. And then they said to him, this is so good, what, what, what must we, we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Wait a minute, the work of God is to believe in Jesus. Belief is part of what we are here to do. Faith is part of our purpose. I love uh, the story in John chapter four. Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. She came there to draw water for herself and Jesus asked her for a drink. And she gets really confused by this. She doesn't understand why he's talking to her and how he's gonna draw water since he doesn't have a water jar. And so then Jesus blows her mind by saying this. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So eventually this woman is convinced that Jesus is no ordinary man and her faith in him grows when she realizes who he actually is. And then in verses 28 and 29, this is what it says. Then, I love this, Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this man be the Messiah? So this woman, she shows up to get a drink of ordinary, regular water. And her water jar was so precious to her. It was a source of life. It was a means of putting the water in there, of sustaining her uh, to drink water going forward. But the moment that it clicks in her mind who Jesus is and what he is offering, what does she do? She leaves her water jar behind as some commentators point out. And she goes on and tells the whole community about this Jesus. She went looking for ordinary water, but she left filled with living water. So then notice what Jesus does after this. So his disciples know that Jesus hasn't eaten in a while and they wanted him to eat some food. You know, they're just trying to take care of him. But then in verse 32, this is what Jesus says. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Who did that? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What does food do? Food fuels us, it nourishes us, it sustains our bodies for a short time until we get hungry again and we have to eat. But spiritual food that Jesus is talking about, it nourishes, it sustains our soul, it fuels our purpose and hope going forward. 
Uh, Dwayne Uktek is a friend of mine at a previous church who was constantly consuming spiritual food. And we used to serve a, a meal at a homeless shelter um, at the town that we were at. And so there was one time when it was just the two of us that signed up to serve this meal, just he and I. But that didn't matter to him. He, he prepared a feast for 30 to 40 homeless people. And man, I watched him smile and light up as he served plate after plate of food to these people uh, who were dealing with poverty and homelessness. And after they ate, it was our turn to eat something. And so I asked Dwayne, uh, are you going to eat? Because I was pigging out um, and he wasn't doing anything. And he said, no, I'm good. And then he said, I'm pretty sure that I get more out of this than they do. He didn't need to eat the physical food. His faith fed him. He was filled up on this spiritual food. Faith is a huge part of our purpose, and so is serving. And so serving others is going to lead us to our next uh, part of the diagram, which is family. What is family? Well, there, there is our, there's our immediate family. There's our extended family, and you have a purpose in all of that. But today we're going to focus on more of an extended definition of our family. And so there's one definition of family that says it's just all of the descendants of a common ancestor. So if family is all of the descendants of a common ancestor, as we talked about at the beginning, if that's true, all of us are descended from Adam and Eve, which then makes all of us family. Wait, so does that mean that I have to treat my neighbor who is annoying like family? Yes. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. And, and then when he is questioned, who is my neighbor? Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan, who is the only one to actually take care of this injured man. And no one else would help, not even the religious leaders. And so part of your purpose is to love and serve your neighbors like family. So sometimes you'll be called upon through faith to serve people who don't look anything like you do. They don't act like you do. Um, they probably don't smell like you do, perhaps the poor. And the Rooted, uh, the Rooted book does a great job of defining poverty. And it quotes a, a book called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. And they talk about poverty and how we should respond. And this is a quote from the, that book by uh, Steve Corbett and Brian Feichert. We generally understand poverty in material terms. Logically, we then assume that work among the poor is primarily about leveraging resources or skills. Yet, they demonstrate that poverty as defined by those in poverty is often primarily understood in fundamentally psychological terms. Terms like powerless, shameful, worthless and others are self-applied and then uh, in the rooted book uh, this goes on once we open ourselves up to the idea that we have more similarities than differences with those we are helping our service comes out of compassion it becomes less about us sweeping in and saving the day and more about being open to what god will teach us through those we help god might be wanting to teach me that I am just as broken on the inside as those who might look broken on the outside. And so I love that release is giving us an opportunity to serve and to mentor some people who may have felt powerless or shameful or worthless. And, and they don't need me to, to swoop in and be a hero and rescue them. They need me to listen, maybe even to relate. I know I have felt shameful I have felt worthless, 
and there will likely be more things in common than we realize. And the last one is work. This is the one that gets the most press. More books are written about finding your purpose and work than anything else. People come up with catchy phrases like, find something you love so much that Netflix becomes boring. Uh, that's John Acuff. Or work hard, play harder, find your passion, fulfill your calling, do something you love. You'll never work a day in your life. So a lot of words have been written by motivational speakers, maybe even pastors on this subject. But do you know what is largely silent on the issue of finding your work purpose or finding the right job or finding the right career? The Bible. You can look from page one to the last page and not find a single verse that's going to tell you what job you are supposed to take. There's no career aptitude test in the Bible. And you might be thinking, well, obviously, uh, the Bible was written thousands of years ago. It's not going to tell me whether to be an electrical engineer or a YouTube influencer. Those careers didn't exist back then. But the Bible doesn't advocate for any career. Jesus was a carpenter, Paul is a tent maker, and the Bible doesn't glorify carpentry or tent making. It never says become a carpenter and fulfill your passion and your purpose. Now Paul loves putting together lists, but he never gives us a list of acceptable Christian professions, even professions in the ancient world. Why is that? Could it be that scripture is more interested in who you will become than what you do. Colossians 3.23 uh, tells these servants, it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It doesn't tell them work hard, play harder, or do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. It doesn't even tell them to get a new job, um, even though most of them would have been stuck um, serving these earthly masters. So what you do, it matters less than who you are. What you do matters less than how you do it. Are you glorifying God in your work or are you glorifying yourself? Now, once you believe in Jesus, you have the faith part started of your purpose and then you receive the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit has a complex role, but one of the things that the Spirit does is affirm truth and provide spiritual gifts. And so you might be, maybe you're teaching a kid about God and then all of a sudden the spirit rises up inside of you and you feel his presence. And it's, it's like you wake up and you feel alive and your heart starts to beat differently and your lungs seem like you're intaking pure oxygen and you're just overwhelmed with this sense that can only be described as joy. And your brain says, that's it. That's what it is. That's what I have been created to do. And sometimes it's a vocational thing, but it's something that you get paid to do, but sometimes it's a volunteer thing. It's work that you do for free. Adam and Eve weren't getting paid to do any of their work in the garden, but they still had fulfilling work to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, Anthony taught about this verse um, at our August outdoor ser uh, service celebration. And we had several baptisms, it was so amazing. And so when each of those people accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit gave them gifts to use to glorify God and to benefit others. And, and God had, had work prepared for them. And so for me, when I finally surrendered my life 
to Christ in college, I knew that verse, I knew Ephesians 2.10, that God had prepared work for me. I knew Proverbs 16.9, that God established the steps of those who love him. I knew Psalm 97 and prayed that God would establish the work of my hands. But I thought that there was an A team work and there was a B team work and there was a C team work. And maybe the A team work was doing missions overseas. Maybe the B team work uh, was to be a pastor and, and the C team was maybe for the rest of us. And, and for me, I thought, man, I'm gonna be lucky if I'm even on the C team. I feel like I'm riding the bench right now. And so maybe some of you are serving somewhere and you think, is this even doing any good? Like, I feel like I'm on the C team here. The A team people are doing all the cool stuff. And maybe you think you should be someone else. You should have someone else's gifts. That life would be better for you if you were an A team player. But here's the truth. There is no A team. God might send you overseas to be a missionary and that'd be amazing. But he might send you to disciple your own kids. Or he might send you to, to disciple other people's kids in student life or in kids' life. And so maybe you're in a position right now that you, you're unhappy. Your, your work is negatively affecting your family and maybe your faith. It's time for a change. Maybe you're at a point you want to go deeper. Or maybe you're in a good position, a position that works for other people. It just doesn't seem to work for you. And I have been there, but that's a story for another time. There are so many good things that we can do. How do we know what to try? Here are some things that I think we can do to try to discern what work we should pursue. Number one, start actively listening to God. When you pray, make some space for God to respond. And so this is gonna require silence and discipline. One thing that you can try is the words of Samuel. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And when you do that, you can close your eyes, you can focus, and don't just try this once and then give up. Make it a habit. Try actively listening to God for a month and see what God does. Ask that God will help you to hear his voice and to know what it is and when he is speaking. Anthony talked about how God speaks to us a few weeks ago. This is an opportunity to put that into practice. Number two, begin the spiritual gifts discernment process. Again, when you go through Rooted, and we're going to have another Rooted session coming up in January, when you go through Rooted, you get to discern this as a group together. And it's so helpful to walk through this process with other people. They help affirm the gifts you've been given. Uh, sometimes, I think in the Midwest, we really downplay our gifts. Um, we, we're just so nice and, and humble, and we think, oh, shucks. I'm sure everyone is as hospitable as I am. It's not a big deal. I'm sure I don't have the gift of hospitality. But other people in your group are like, no, you, you definitely do have that. Uh, and so you'll look at um, a list of scriptures, and I've got some on the screen. You can take a, take a picture of this. We're not going to go through them today. Um, but you can read through that. Know how you have been gifted. And this is going to help you discern the type of work to pursue, free work or paid work. And here's the last one, number three. Ask God to establish the work of your hands. That's Psalm 90, 17, which will be up on the screen. God knows how he made you. He, he knows how he gifted you. He knows the work he has planned for you. And so you can ask him to establish your work instead of trying to establish it on your own. Because here's the thing. It is time for us to stop pursuing our own desires and start going after God's. So we want to actively listen. 
We want to discern what our spiritual gifts are. And we want to ask God to establish the work of our hands. God made you in his image. He fearfully and wonderfully made you on purpose. You didn't arrive here by accident. He's been preparing for you. He actually thinks about you way more than you think about him. Listen to Psalm 139, 17 to 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Even if you feel far away from God, right now. He is still near. His thoughts about you outnumber the grains of sand, and you won't know his thoughts until you ask. Matthew 7, 7 to 11 says this. This is how we'll close. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Ask God what he wants you to do. Ask him why you are here. What is next for you? And then be brutally honest. Do you expect good things from God? Do you actually believe that God has good for you? Because if not, it is time to exercise that faith. Our purpose is right in the middle of our faith, our family, and our work. And God has a good purpose for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us a purpose, for giving us a reason to live, a reason to exist, and for giving our minds curiosity that we would look up at the stars and question the nature of things, that, that we would start to wonder why we are here. We would start to wonder who we have been made to be. God, I pray that we will find and fulfill our purpose in you and we won't fulfill it in any of the other false gods. God, even um, our, our, our workplace, even our family can become false gods. And so I pray, Lord, that you will help us to find our purpose at, at the center, God, of, of our faith and our family and our work. And God, we know that you are right there. So Lord, uh, what, a, what a blessing we have to have a God who cares about who we are to cares about how we have been made. So Lord, this morning we give you thanks and praise. It's in your name, amen.